0: You're listening to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from Associate Pastor Andrew Morton. Well friends, as you have probably experienced for yourself, barriers are a pretty ordinary part of life. They're all around us. In the course of our lives, we may encounter many different kinds of barriers in the midst of our daily and weekly rhythms. For example, if you happen to live in Warsaw or you are driving through Warsaw, when a train is passing through Warsaw, you have experienced that kind of a barrier. It doesn't matter if your destination is right there on the other side of the tracks. It may as well be on another planet for the next five or 10 or perhaps more minutes because there is that barrier you are not getting through. Another kind of barrier may exist. For example, if you've had the opportunity to travel out of the country and you've been to a place where it's hard to find directions in the language that you speak and you can't find anyone to give you guidance or help you know where to go, then you have encountered a language barrier. For those of you who are grandparents or parents, and you have tried to help the young people in your life with their math homework, maybe what you've discovered that they call math is not what you call math. (laughs) And you've tried to explain things to them the way that you know, and they've tried to explain things to you in the way that they know, and it is not getting through. That is a communication barrier. Students, if your teacher has just handed you a quiz, and you realize that you studied the wrong material, and the information that's on the page in front of you is stuff you've never seen before, then you in that moment are running into a knowledge barrier. If you've been trying to improve your relationship with a family member or a friend and they seem to be keeping you at arm's length and nothing that you do ever seems to make a difference, then you probably have a relationship barrier uh, that you're dealing with. As you're trying to balance your budget, and you're trying to figure out how on earth you're going to pay for everything that you want to pay for, and things just aren't adding up, you are experiencing a financial barrier. And if you're trying to do a simple task that you used to be able to do just by talking to someone or going someplace, but but now you're told you need to download an app in order to do that, and, and the person who told you that said, this is really easy, it's no trouble at all, and you've discovered it's not that easy and you're about ready to pull your hair out and throw your phone onto the floor, you are experiencing a technology barrier. And some of us experience those a lot in our lives. Barriers, they, they can also get in the way in our spiritual lives. Sometimes we experience spiritual bar- barriers of, of many different kinds. At times we may feel distant from God. We maybe wonder if He is distant from us. We wonder maybe if our communication is getting through or if He's paying attention to what's going on in our lives. Maybe something has happened in our lives or the lives of a loved one that has planted seeds of doubt or discouragement within us. Perhaps we're upset because we feel that God has let us down or that the church has let us down, and that also can lead to a sense of a barrier in our spiritual lives. Or perhaps we feel like we are just stuck going round in circles in a particular battle, maybe with a struggle or a temptation or something that we want to do a better job at and we're not seeing the progress that we wanted to see. Or maybe we've been praying the same prayer for a long time and it hasn't been answered. Or maybe we just don't feel the same joy we used to feel. All of these can be spiritual barriers that we encounter in our walk with the Lord. In these ways, we often may feel stuck And maybe we don't even have the right words uh, to describe it sometimes. But friends, our lives are riddled with all kinds of barriers. And these barriers can leave us feeling frustrated, can't they? They can leave us feeling dry and discouraged and we don't know what to do next. But praise the Lord, we turn our attention this morning on our second week of our Stuck series to a passage which shows us that our God is a barrier breaker, that God can Break through barriers of all kinds with his redeeming love. That God works through his word, through his spirit, and through the obedience of his people to shatter the prisoners' chains and to set the captives free. In his grace, God can break through the barriers in our lives and can even work through us to bring down barriers in the lives of other people. This morning as we open up scripture to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, we see what it can look like both to be someone that God uses to break down barriers and to be someone for whom there is the need for a barrier to come down. And as we walk through this passage together this morning, we will consider what it means for us to be on mission with God as he is in the business of breaking down barriers with the hope of Jesus Christ. We'll look at how important it is for us to obey God's sending spirit. How we have the privilege of reaching the deep places that God's word uncovers in human hearts. And we'll see what it is like when we finally see the openings that God creates for the triumph of his love and of his grace. As we turn to our passage this morning, and I invite you to open up God's word, your Bible or your Bible app, to this uh, latter portion of Acts chapter 8, this passage shows us the importance, first of all, of obeying God's sending Spirit. We've been singing a lot about that so far this morning, and now we read about that in God's Word. God is indeed on the move, as Pastor Aaron said. God is the one who is committed to breaking down barriers, and by His grace, He wants to include us. In that process, he wants to use us to help bring those barriers down. But in order to do this, we need to be attuned to God's heart and to the leading of his Holy Spirit, as Pastor Aaron reminded us last week. So as we open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, we meet in this passage a man named Philip, who by all accounts certainly was attuned to God's leading. Now this man is Philip the deacon, and we don't want to confuse him with the other Philip in the New Testament who is one of the twelve disciples and the apostles. Those are two different Philips, and our our Philip today is first introduced to us in Acts chapter 6. He is one of seven Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who were chosen to serve as the first deacons of the church. So those of you who are serving or who have served as deacon— Uh, Philip is is one of your people. He has walked in your shoes. He's the second person listed on that list of the first deacons. His name appears right after Stephen, who is martyred for his witness to, uh, to others about Jesus Christ at the end of Acts chapter 7. So Stephen dies at the end of Acts 7. At the beginning of Acts chapter 8, there's a great persecution that breaks out in Jerusalem. And so the Christians are scattered to the nearby area. And in this moment, Philip, the deacon, who has just seen one of his close companions in the Lord suffer and die for his faith, now is taking the gospel to the land of Samaria. By God's grace, he works through Philip's ministry, and many people come to the Lord, and lives are changed. The gospel has firmly taken root throughout Samaria by the end of Acts 8, verse 25. And in accordance with Jesus' charge to his followers in Acts 1-8, now the gospel has taken root throughout Jerusalem and now in Judea and Samaria, but it hasn't yet gone out to the ends of the earth. So, so at the beginning of today's passage, there is this moment where the gospel has been on the move, but it hasn't yet broken out of these regions around Jerusalem and Samaria. So, so there's the question here of, is this a barrier? that the church will break through and will overcome. This barrier hasn't been broken yet. And there's the potential we see at the end of verse 25 that the apostles are starting to go back to Jerusalem. So adversity has compelled them to go outside the city. But this outward movement, will it continue or will it die out? Will the believers start to settle back in and get comfortable in Jerusalem again? Now, now Philip has just seen God do some amazing, extraordinary things through his ministry. So, what's Philip going to do next? Is he going to go back and stay in Jerusalem and declare, Mission accomplished, we've done amazing things, now let's relax and let other people get to work? Or is instead he going to say, You know what, things were really going well in Samaria, let's go back there. Let's build on our previous success. Let's make the most of what God has already done. Or is God going to stir Philip up to do something new? This is the point where we pick up in the story in the 26th verse of Acts chapter 8. Continuing the account of Philip, the deacon, and the evangelist, we read this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south. To the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So so Philip here is hearing from the Lord, but the message that he hears may have surprised him. Arise, the Greek text reads. Leave Jerusalem, leave this place with all of its familiarity and go. But go where? Go back to Samaria, where the church is growing? No, Go, go to Galilee, perhaps, where Jesus had his ministry and where the apostles have an existing network of, of friends and allies who can help them spread the gospel. Well, no, don't go there either. Instead, go where? To the south on the road to Gaza. Go to the desert road. God is sending Philip to a new place, to a dry and a desolate place. Philip may have wanted to ask God, Why would you send me there, Lord? with so many promising opportunities out there in other places, why should I go to the middle of nowhere? After all, I'm the one who led the Samaritans to the gospel. That is a big deal. So why should I waste my talent by being the one to go off into the desert? Why don't you send one of those other guys? It wouldn't have been surprising for us to hear Philip wrestle with questions and misgivings like this. Maybe he had those objections. Maybe he didn't. But what we do know is that he obeyed the prompting of the Lord. Continuing in verse 27 and 28, we read So he started out, he arose, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So on the road, Philip encounters this chariot, or, or perhaps uh, perhaps uh, kind of maybe more than just what we think of as a two-wheeled chariot, probably larger with room for this man, for his driver. He probably had guards and other servants or officials with him. And so Philip encounters this entourage, and, and this would have been something that he would notice. You don't see a group like this going down the road from Jerusalem to Gaza every day. Now, we're told a few things about this man. First, we are told that he is the official in charge of the queen's treasury. He serves in the royal court of of what is called in our text Ethiopia. Now, now, ironically enough, when the Bible refers to Ethiopia, or sometimes it calls it Cush, it's not referring to the region that we know and that we call Ethiopia today. Modern-day Ethiopia in the Bible is called Abyssinia. I know, why why the change? I didn't choose the names, uh, but I'm just trying to help us know what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about Ethiopia, and it's referring to what in history we call the ancient kingdom of Nubia. And Nubia was ruled by powerful monarchs at this time. Nubia was actually outside the Roman Empire, so this was an independent kingdom. And the queens and the queen mothers of Nubia held this royal title, Kandake, kind of like how in Egypt we think of the ruler being known as the pharaoh. And at this time, the Kandake would have been uh, either a woman named uh, Mantiore or the woman who followed her. And this is a period that is well known and attested in Nubian history. We have archaeological evidence from this time that shows that this period in the history of the Nubian court was marked by economic prosperity. There were grand building projects happening. And what do you know? We have here the official that's in charge of the treasury of that prosperous and influential independent kingdom. So, so this official was not a secretary sitting at a desk somewhere. He was someone who was making big decisions about how money and resources were being spent. He was someone of power and influence. He was a really big deal. Secondly, we are told that this man happened to be a eunuch. Now, our text doesn't go into a lot of detail about this, uh, but this is the primary word that this passage uses to refer to this man. This morning, we'll, we'll try to keep things safe for the little ears that may be listening out there, but we also want to be honest about what the Bible says, and we don't want to gloss over what might seem like uncomfortable details to some of us. In the ancient world, it was not at all unusual or uncommon for officials in key positions to be eunuchs. In in the ancient world, marked by political intrigue and palace power struggles and cutthroat court betrayal, rulers had to be very careful about who they would trust with positions of power and influence. And often, powerful officials who had money, who had ambition, who had the desire and ability to build up their own dynasty, they could become a major problem or even a rival to the king. So one easy way that many ancient empires dealt with that possible problem was to make sure that the powerful jobs only went to men who no longer had the capability of causing mischief with the ladies, or of building up their own family, or their own dynasty. So this physical procedure was carried out usually without the consent of the person involved, and it would open, on the one hand, it would open up the door of access to status and to power, but it also symbolized a fundamental powerlessness as well. That person true, could could go into the presence of the ruler. They had access to all of these resources, but in a way they found that they had become the property of the ruler and of that kingdom themselves. Now the third thing we're told about this man is that he had been to Jerusalem to worship, and even now he is reading from the book of Isaiah on his way home. Both of these are really noteworthy things. Assuming that he had started off his journey from the royal court of Nubia at Meroe, he would have traveled over 1,700 miles just to get to Jerusalem. That is a large trip for him to go on. It was an expensive trip to go on. It, it, this illustrates to us that at this time in history, Judaism, the Jewish religion, had actually reached farther into Africa than the Roman Empire itself which is really amazing for us to think about. We see that there were pockets of people who, who knew about and who followed the Jewish faith in this kingdom. So this person is, is, is one of them, and he's traveled to Jerusalem, and now he's traveling back. And the fact that he has in his possession a copy of the scroll of, the scroll of Isaiah is also a big deal because in the ancient world, these scrolls were so expensive, it was very rare For someone to own or have access to a copy in their own possession. So this guy had access to money. And how did he choose to spend a lot of this money? By having a copy of scripture that he could take with him and read. This shows his level of interest and, uh, and enthusiasm and passion for the God of Abraham. While his religious zeal for the Jewish faith is apparent, this man's status within the Jewish community would have been less clear. Because when it came to actually belonging to the Jewish people and to the Jewish faith, this Ethiopian had a problem. And it was this, he wasn't a Jew by birth. He was ethnically outside of God's chosen covenant people. Now, ordinarily, there was a solution to this problem. Those born outside of the Jewish faith could convert. They could become proselyte Jews. They could take the covenant sign of circumcision. They could observe the Jewish temple ceremonies and keep the law of Moses and become a convert to Judaism. But then that brings us to a second problem that didn't have a simple solution. Because of his situation as a eunuch, this man was legally excluded From belonging to the worshiping community on this subject the law of Moses was painfully clear going back to Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 the law of Moses said no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord and that was essentially in the law of Moses the final word on the topic Now, why was that law in place? It probably had to do something with with God talking about uh, the the purity and the perfection that was required. We read about the spotless animals uh, that were involved in temple worship. This was probably to teach the people just how holy he was. But the sad reality was that it left people like this man excluded from being able to participate in the religious life of the faith that he had been attracted to. And so that that means that he would have been, on the one hand, a God-fearer, deeply drawn to the God of Abraham. He believed in the God of Abraham. He read the scriptures. He, he had gone on a long and expensive trip to Jerusalem. But when he was there, he probably was barred from the temple. He probably was not allowed to participate in any of the rituals. He would have felt like an outsider looking in, wanting to be a part of this, wanting to belong, but being excluded because of the rigid religious code that was followed at that time. It would have been a barrier that he couldn't break through. He would have been left feeling spiritually stuck, spiritually homeless. Now, interestingly, he's reading the book of Isaiah. And if he had just gone a little further, he would have found these words in Isaiah 56, 3 through 7, where God speaks tender words of hope to those in his exact situation. Isaiah 56, 3 and following say, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls. So now this promise is that they will be able at some point to come into the place of worship which they could not do before i will give to them within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters i will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever and foreigners verse 6 who bind themselves to the lord to minister to him to love the name of the lord and to be his servants all who keep the sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. He says their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Acts 8 here shows us the Ethiopian eunuch, reading from Isaiah 53, just a few chapters before this, and and these words of hope are waiting for him if he will just get that far. But he probably hadn't gotten that far yet. And even if he had, perhaps he was wondering, this process, this promise sounds great, but when will this happen? Is this just some good news for the future, or is this good news for me right here and right now? In this moment, he is caught in the tension between being excluded in the present reality, but but serving a God who has a heart to welcome those like him and bring them in. But he hasn't seen it happen yet. And we know that this happens because of Jesus. But in this moment, this man does not know about Jesus yet. He is left feeling spiritually homeless, stuck on the outside the cry of his heart very well may have been, is there really a place in God's people for me? Is there really a place in God's heart for me? And we know the answer is yes. But he didn't know that yet. In the same way, there are so many people around us who are wondering, is there a place in the church for me? Is there a place in the family of God for me? Is there a place in God's heart for me? And we too know that the answer is yes. But they don't know that yet. Or maybe they've heard it, but it doesn't feel real to them. So there's this barrier that needs to be crossed. And so continuing on in verse 29 and in the first half of verse 30, we see the Spirit sending Philip to cross that barrier to bring it down. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, this chariot is probably traveling faster than Philip is at this point, so this, this, is, this is a big ask in terms of Philip's ability to run and catch up uh, as, as he's probably feeling left in the dust, but, but also that this act of drawing near would have had other challenges. We, we don't know how Philip would have felt about going up to this chariot. Maybe he was intimidated by the trappings of wealth and power. Maybe he, he would wonder, why would this person even be interested in hearing what I have to say? After all, this chariot probably was protected by at least one guard, and that guard's job was to keep people from doing exactly what Philip was told he needed to do, of coming up to the chariot. So, so this would have been a pretty intimidating job to do, but that was the Spirit's command, to draw near and to stay near. And this is a vital part of what it means for us to share our faith. Just as the Holy Spirit had a purpose for sending Philip to an unlikely place, so too the Spirit of the Lord places us in situations that we may not always understand. And we may not always see, what is it, God, that you've put me here to do? Part of what it means to be a Christian is that God will place us in circumstances where he tells us to draw near to people that we may not really want to have a whole lot to do with and we may have zero reasons for naturally associating with them and, and, and he will say to us approach them draw near to them and so our tendency perhaps will be to say well God maybe not and, and then we'll say okay God I'll do it I'll draw near I'll go into the deep end of the pool okay now I've done that so now I'm going to go back to my comfort zone Let's go back to where our feet can touch the bottom. We, we already did that, and uh, that, that was crazy, but you were with us, God, but now we're going to go back over here. And please don't ask us to do that again. But, but what he says to us often is to draw near and to stay near because he made them and because he loves them because he has plans for them and is already at work in their lives. And guess what? He delights to work through us to bring about amazing changes so his grace can be displayed. And so in those times, are we willing to obey? First of all, are we willing to go where and when the Spirit tells us to go? And then are we willing to draw near to the people that he nudges us toward? Are are we willing to come close to them and to stay close to them, to build relationships with them, to serve them, to listen to them, to show them the love of Christ even when they give us many reasons perhaps not to? Are we willing to see them not as a project, but as a person for whom Jesus Christ was not ashamed to die? Are we willing to embrace them as those whom God Himself is embracing through us? Philip was willing. He went over. He didn't just walk over, he ran over. And as he got closer to the chariot, he began to hear how God was at work in the situation, not just by His Spirit, but by His inspired Word. The conversation that follows between Philip and the Ethiopian shows us how God works through both His Word and his spirit to accomplish his life-changing work. As Philip obeys the leading of the Holy Spirit, we see him reaching the depths that have been uncovered by Scripture as it comes into contact with the human heart. Philip hears the Ethiopian reading the words of Isaiah, and he responds by asking a simple but probing question that invites the Ethiopian to open up and to let Philip in to the spiritual journey, to draw him deeper into conversation. Continuing with the second half of verse 30, do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How, how do you feel if you were doing your Bible reading and someone just popped in and said, do you understand what you're reading? How much of us would be ready to, to answer that question in that moment? Well, our, our English translation accurately tells us the practical meaning of Philip's question. But there's a poetic simplicity and beauty of it that's lost in our language. The ancient Greeks derived their word for reading from the word for knowing. So, so reading is just a variation of what it means to know something. And, and so their word for reading meant to, to know thoroughly, to know something well, to recognize. Knowing was gnosko, and reading was enagnosko. So, so, so when Philip asks this question he puts these two very similar words together which at their most basic level would be him saying do you know what you know do you really know what you know do you understand what you're saying out loud do you really know inwardly that which you seem to know outwardly and that's a good question for us too Because maybe we feel that we know things, but it hasn't really penetrated to our heart. And we need someone to ask us those questions and to draw us deeper. That's what Philip is doing here. He asks this question, and it gets an emphatic response from the Ethiopian. Verse 31, How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now now this outspoken but honest answer points to our deep need, that each of us, we need to understand what God's Word, and so often we need someone to help us. We need someone to unpack it and explain it for us so that we can make sense of it, so that that outward truth that we know can become inward truth that we really believe. And in this answer, we also hear echoes of Paul's teaching in Romans 10, verses 12 through 15, where he is writing about, of all things, the equal spiritual opportunity available to Jews and Gentiles, And where Paul explains, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To which we we reply, Amen, Paul. Preach it. But, But then he stops and he breaks that down for us. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul shows us that our theology implies a certain lifestyle. If we really believe that the good news of Jesus is for everyone, then we ought to be ready at a moment's notice to take it to anyone and everyone because to imply equal opportunity is to imply opportunity, which means we need to be c- committed to providing that opportunity for people to hear and for people to respond. And in the eighth chapter of Acts, Philip is living out what it is that Paul writes about in Romans 10. This Ethiopian man was eager to see the approaching feet of someone, of of anyone who could help him understand what he was reading. And he eagerly invites Philip to put those in the moment to him beautiful feet into action by climbing up into that chariot. And in the same way, we too can take heart that as God gives us opportunities to bring the good news of Jesus to those around us, we may encounter opposition, yes, but there are those who have been waiting for it. There are those who are hungry for it, and there are those that when they hear us approach with that good news, our approach is beautiful to them because it brings them life-giving water in the desert. So as Philip climbed into this chariot and sees what this passage is that has confused and intrigued and baffled the Ethiopian, he noticed God is at work here stirring up this man's heart. Continuing with verse 32 we read, this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? These words from Isaiah 53 are words that many of you probably recognize. They are powerful. They tell us of Jesus who suffered on our behalf, who went through injustice and persecution, who who entered into our brokenness and who rescued us when we were stuck in our sins. These are beautiful and powerful truths for anyone. But these truths hit the Ethiopian eunuch at an even deeper level. Because as he read these words, he saw a description of someone who, like him, had been treated unjustly, who had been led before the shearers, and who had raised no protest or no accusation against those who exploited him and took something from him. The suffering servant, like the Ethiopian, was victimized and was deprived of justice and, like the Ethiopian, had no descendants to speak of, no one coming after him who had come from him. For his life was taken from the earth. And in the original Hebrew, it reads, He was cut off from the land of the living. As the Ethiopian read these words, he found something in Scripture that he could resonate with. He found someone in Scripture who understood his own personal trauma and pain, who also felt isolated and alone in a spiritual no-man's land, who shared in his silent suffering with dignity, and who honestly described the sorrows and the injustices of life. Hearing God's Word speak to his wounded heart with such honesty, this Ethiopian had to know more. His words to Philip literally were, I need of you. I need you to tell me who is this person the prophet's speaking of. He wanted to know more about who this person was who could understand and speak to his life experiences. And this, friends, shows us the power of God's word to cut to the heart. It can uncover the deep truths and the deep longings as well as the deep hurts that lie buried within us. It speaks honestly to us in a way that compels us to reach out to the Lord to take hold of us. As we follow in the ways of Philip, obeying the Spirit's lead and reaching for the depths that God is uncovering through his holy scriptures, we too arrive at the point where we begin to see openings around us as the Lord works through word and spirit to bring barriers down. In the remaining verses of our passage, there are three openings to be seen. First, Philip saw an opening to share the gospel in verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Again, our, our English translation can pretty accurate meaning, but it loses some of the power of Luke's words. It says he proclaimed. It's, it's the word for proclaimed that has to do with when you proclaim good news. But what is it that Philip proclaimed? Not just the good news. He proclaimed Jesus. He saw this man in his need, and he knew that his need was not simply a message. It was not simply information that he needed Jesus himself. And so what did Philip give him? Did he give him a presentation He gave him Jesus. He told him who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, that Jesus was the suffering servant who entered into our brokenness to save us, that he was the one who could save the Ethiopian from his sins. Philip opened up his mouth, which is the phrase used to describe uh, throughout the Bible when someone begins to proclaim a message from the Lord. Philip saw an opening, so he proclaimed the good news, starting from that very passage to show how what the Ethiopian was looking for, who he was looking for, was the Savior, Jesus Christ. As a result of Philip seeing this opening and proclaiming the good news, the Ethiopian saw an opening for him to draw near to the God that he once felt excluded from. Continuing with verses 36 through 38, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot, verse 38. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Philip continued to proclaim Jesus until he arrived at Caesarea. And later on in the book of Acts, in chapter 21, we see that Philip is still there with his four prophesying daughters, serving the Lord and pointing people toward Jesus. As Acts 8 comes to an end, we see the beginning of this mission to the Gentiles. In the next chapter, Acts 9, we will see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who will become the apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 10, we see Peter being told to go and proclaim the good news to the household of Cornelius the Gentile. And by chapters 11 and 12, this barrier has come down, and the gospel has been set loose to go to the ends of the earth. Friends, the gospel is still on the move today. And we are still a part of this. There are those around us, even right here in this room perhaps, that are longing for the hope of God's presence, who are hungry for a place to belong in God's family, but who have not yet felt the Lord's embrace. Perhaps that is because they have not yet had the chance to feel his embrace through us, to hear the word flow from our lips and from our hearts. To hear and to see Christ proclaimed by us and in us. If you are here listening today, or if you're listening online today, and if you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ, if you do not yet know Jesus, then please hear this. There is someone who sees you and who knows you, he knows what you have gone through. He understands your struggles and your battles. He gets your pain in a way that no one else does. He became human to take your pain, your brokenness, and your sorrow upon himself. He is for you. He is with you. And he is the one that you have been longing for and looking for. Nothing else will satisfy. So friends, what should stand in the way of you running to his arms and finding your resting place in him? And for those of us, friends, who already know Jesus and who are already followers of Jesus, let us hold nothing back from proclaiming Christ wherever he leads us. Let us walk in obedience to God's Spirit. Let us be willing to arise and to go even to dry places, even when we think that there is nothing for us there, let us be willing to draw near to the world that God so loves and to those for whom he died. Let us listen to our Savior's voice. Let us follow that voice. Let us proclaim his word and ask the questions that lead to openings for the gospel. And let us step into those openings in faith knowing that our faithful Savior is with us leading us every inch of the way so that his house may truly be a house of prayer for all nations and so that the good news of Jesus truly might extend to the very ends of the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are a God whose heart is bigger than we can ever fathom, that you know us, you see us, and even when we are far from you, And when we wonder if there is any hope for us, that you draw us near. Lord, as the God who draws near, send us to draw near to others in your name. Lord, show us in our each and every day lives how we can be a part of bringing down barriers for one another, for those around us. We ask that you would bring down the barriers in our own hearts and lives. If there is anyone here who is feeling crushed and trapped by these barriers, we ask, Lord, that you would break those chains this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would work through us. Here we are. Send us to proclaim you, to proclaim Jesus to a world in need. In Christ's name, we pray these things. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And check out our other discussions and messages. To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us, and have a blessed day.